So our reading today is, um, is from the book of Haggai. And uh, we're actually starting a new sermon series here on the book of Haggai. So turn to Haggai. It's in your Old Testament. He's one of the minor prophets. Uh, it's only a two-chapter book, so it's really easy to, to glance past him. Um, uh, but essentially, he's towards the end of the Old Testament. Um, let's see. Uh, three books before the New Testament, so towards the end of the Old Testament. And we're going to be looking at Haggai, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. So chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. A lot of ones there. Okay, book of Haggai. I'll give you another second. So I'm sure some of you are like, where on earth is this book in the Bible? If you want to become an immediate Bible scholar, by the way, and know the uh, Bible inside out, just look to the table of contents. And right there you'll be able to like, ah, there's Haggai. All right, here we go. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains in ruins? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but have harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? declares the Lord Almighty. Because of my house which remains in ruin while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on the labor of your hands. May God's word bless you. If you got a chance to... Um, to read my pastoral letter this week, which um, we send out every week in the uh, the news e-letter, um, I mentioned that we are entering our 15th week of doing church online. That's right, 15 weeks. And in some ways, 15 weeks doesn't sound like a long time, but actually it also feels like a lifetime. I don't know about you, but it really feels like a long time. But it's basically just over three months, about three and a half months. And there's no question that this pandemic has drastically changed the way that we do church and how we think about church. Um, it, it, you know, it's presented all kinds of challenges for pastors and to church leaders um, about how do we do church right now? How do we do it right now? This is uncharted territory. We've never been here before. And they don't teach you this in seminary, how to do church during a pandemic. But it's presented uh, many, many challenges. But having said that, we are also, I believe, in, an, in, in a time of amazing opportunity. Just a, a unique period in the history of the church, in the history of the world, 
to have an amazing opportunity to rebuild, to reimagine, to re-envision what the church might look like post-pandemic. You know, in many ways, the church has kind of really had a seismic shift. And we, we've had to understand, haven't we, so realistically that the church is not the building. Because we can't gather in the building does not mean the church is not meeting and gathering. And many can look at this this pandemic, this I like to call it plague, because that's what it is, as, as kind of an, an evil thing and has disrupted society. But we've got to remember that God loves to turn what was meant for evil into good. Listen to Genesis chapter 50 verse 20 says you intended to harm me but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done the saving of lives and so I really believe in the middle of all this um, that that we're going to see the saving of lives we're going to see souls saved because more people are going to turn to God are turning to God because of what's going on in the world it's a reality check about what's really important and so I believe this year, 2020, as it keeps going, is going to be a year of rebuilding the church, reimagining the church. What does it look like to rebuild God's house? And that's why we're here in the book of Haggai. The Lord, I believe, he took me to Haggai. He said, this is what our church needs to hear right now. The title of the sermon series is Rebuild My House, because this is essentially what Haggai is about. It's about the rebuilding of the temple of the Lord after the Jews came out of exile. So, we're going to be in Haggai for quite a few weeks. Um, It's a short book, only two chapters, uh, but it's a powerful little book. And um, to get us rolling here, um, I'm going to have to give you some historical context. So, if you're a a history buff, you're going to love this part. You'll either love it or you may hate it. But it's really necessary to us understanding the setting and the reason for this book. Okay, so, here we go. A little background and context. In 586 BC, Jerusalem was conquered and defeated by the Babylonians. The Babylonian was the dominant empire right then. And the Jewish people were exiled and taken into captivity by the Babylonians. This was under King Nebuchadnezzar. And the Jewish temple, the one that had been built by Solomon, was destroyed. Now, the Babylonians, they typically took conquered people, people that had conquered, they took them into captivity and relocated them. That was their their, their tactics. Um, and they relocated them from their homeland to prevent further uprisings. Um, and so, you know, God allowed uh, the Jews and the temple to be destroyed here for them to be taken into exile because basically he'd run out of patience with them. Time and time and time again, he had been telling them, do not do this. Do not follow the ways of the pagans. Do not worship these false gods. If you continue to do this, ruin will come upon you. And he gave them chance after chance until finally the punishment came upon them and they were taken into exile because of their constant disobedience. Now, skip to 539 BC. So we've gone from 586 to 539 BC. And the Babylonian Empire is defeated by Cyrus the Great, who's the king of Persia. All right, so Persia is the next mighty kingdom empire to emerge after the Babylonians. And uh, under Cyrus the Great and the, the Persians, they had a different approach to the nations and kingdoms that they had conquered. Instead of exiling them and pulling them out of their land, they were much more tolerant and accepting of all the different cultures. And so what they did is they allowed uh, the people who'd been conquered to stay in their homelands. And to still be able to uh, have all their cultural values and, and worship uh, their, their gods. Um, and 
what Persians did is they turned these conquered lands into provinces of the Persian Empire and would set up a, a governor to govern the Persian under Persian oversight. So in 539, Cyrus the Great has defeated the Babylonians and he issues a decree that allowed all the nations and kingdoms that had been taken into exile and captivity under the Babylonians. And he issues a decree that allows them to return to their homelands and to rebuild and reoccupy their homelands and, and, and build and get back to normal. And of course, this um, um, affects the Jews. They're allowed to come out of exile from Babylon and come back to Jerusalem. Now, let's stop there for a moment. Because I want to point out a couple of really, really cool things. Number one, in 1879, there was an archaeologist on an excavation uh, in what was ancient Babylon, now present-day Iraq. They found what is now known as the Cyrus Cylinder. And this was, this was the decree that Cyrus the Great made, allowing the nations to return to their lands. And it was dated to around 6th century, which is the time we're talking about here. Um, it's currently housed in the British Museum. Now, why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because it's a reminder that the Bible is real history. These are real historical events that we are reading and learning about. They're not just made-up stories. You know, when people say, oh, the Bible's just a bunch of fairy tales, and it's but that is complete ignorance. That is a sign of somebody who's never studied the Bible, understands very little about what Scripture is about. It is a history book and a reliable history book, amongst other things. So that's the first point I wanted to make. Secondly, this decree that Cyrus declared and that archaeologists have now found was actually prophesied and predicted about over 150 years ago in the Bible by the prophet Isaiah. So 150 years before anybody knew anything about Cyrus or that he would ever exist, the prophet Isaiah told about this event. Listen to what Isaiah chapter 45 verse 13 says. Isaiah right in here prophesying through the Lord. He says, I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. So Isaiah, through the power of the Lord, he, he, he foresaw this. Okay. And by the way, Cyrus, that's a, that would have been a name that was unknown pretty much to most Jews. It's not a Jewish name. Okay, so where is he coming up with this name Cyrus 150 years ago? It's the Lord. And this is the second point. Not only is the Bible a reliable source of history, but it's also a divinely inspired book that accurately, through the power of God, predicts future events. It's historically accurate and it's divinely inspired. So important when you pick the Bible up. Okay, so Cyrus gives his blessing for the Jews to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And they make a good start. They lay the foundations of the temple about three years after this uh, decree. So by 536, they've got the foundations of the temple done. But then things come to a halt. Um, they get so far and then they just stop. And so this now is where we find ourselves as we get into the book of Haggai. So in verse 1 it says, In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. Now, there's a lot of, <coughs> me, a lot of information in that first verse. 
and it gives us two important details. The first one is it gives us the time and date of this prophecy. Again, this is real history. It talks about the second year of King Darius. We know when his reign was because he's a real historical character. And so we can date this book very precisely to 520 BC. And it was late August. In fact, some scholars are like August 29th. But we know it was 520 BC, late August in our calendar. So that's the first thing. The second thing that that first sentence gives us is it gives us the key players, the main people in this book. And there's three of them. So the first one is Haggai. And the first thing I want to do here, first uh, rule of order here is let's make sure we can pronounce his name right. Because I've heard some hilarious uh, pronunciations of his name. I've heard uh, Haggai, 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 probably my favorite, Haggai. It's just simply Haggai. Think of the word Hag, think of the word I, put them together. Haggai. Haggai. What a great guy. All right? Haggai. And his name means feast. And that makes me think, well, perhaps, you know, if his parents were naming him today, perhaps they'd have called him Buffet. Just a thought. But Haggai, he's the prophet. He's the one delivering this prophecy from the Lord. Our second major character is Zerubbabel. And he is, he's going to be the governor of this Judean province. Now, why Zerubbabel? Well, Zerubbabel was descended from King David, the greatest king that Israel had. Okay, he was he's in direct, the direct Davidic line, the line from which Jesus would come. And in fact, both Matthew and Luke's genealogies in their Gospels, they, they list Zerubbabel in Jesus' ancestral line. So no, no Zerubbabel, the, you know, we wouldn't have got to Jesus. He's that important and it, it gives him a legitimacy that he's coming from the Davidic line. And thirdly, we have Joshua, the high priest. And again, he's, he's, got, he's legit because his great-grandfather was Sariah, who was the, the last high priest when Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed in 586. So again, he's got this direct connection of the priestly line. Now, notice something. What do we have there with those three characters? We have prophet, king, and priest. Prophet, king, and priest. Who else was prophet, king, and priest? Jesus. Yeah. In one way or another, everything in the Old Testament somehow points towards Jesus. Now, let me take us to 2020 for a moment. And um, I, I think in many, in many ways we are living in some pretty insane times, don't you think? Uh, just all kinds of craziness going on. And one of the, the crazy things that has afflicted our culture right now is this giant sense of offense about getting offended about everything and anything. You know, it's almost like, hey, when you wake up, don't forget to find something to be offended about, folks. Okay? But it, it really is getting to kind of ridiculous levels. But... One of the phrases and sayings that's a, a bit of a no-no these days and offends and irritates a lot of people is this expression, you people. You ever heard that? You, you ever heard somebody say that? You people, blah, blah, and immediately people get, you know, what do you mean, you people? What's that supposed to mean, right? And it's, people get irate because there's this sense of separation or, or looking down on a certain people group or something like that, right? And so it's a very sort of um, um, touchy thing to say these days. But listen to what God says in verse 2. He says, This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, 
The time has not come yet to rebuild the house. So that's exactly what the Lord's saying. He's essentially saying, he's saying, you people are saying it's not time to rebuild my temple yet. And God is pointing something out here. He's pointed out that, yes, there is a disconnect. There is a separation between him and his people because they've not continued to rebuild the temple. And instead, what have they been doing? They've been focusing on their own houses, their own homes. Verse four, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? You know, one of the the kind of funny things and I guess more lighthearted things about the pandemic is <laughs> the amount of uh, home improvement projects that people have been doing. Have you noticed this? I bet you've probably been doing some yourself, right? Oh, let's get off to Lowe's or Connors Hardware, whatever. Oh, yeah, it's time to do that project that I've been wanting to do for 10 years. Maybe it's building an addition or putting those shelving up or, you know, cleaning the basement out, whatever it is. But people have been doing all these kind of um, uh, things to their homes, these projects, because they've got, they got cabin fever and they're just, give me something to do. And they have this time on their hands, right? So... And it's funny because, you know, we've, we've put all this time into our houses and our homes and our gardens and all this. And God is saying to the Jews here, he's saying that they seem to have plenty of time to invest in and splurge on themselves and invest and renovate their homes with this lovely wood paneling. But they seem to have forgotten him. They seem to have forgotten God. And I, I have to ask us the same question today. What, what do you spend most of your time and resources on what do you invest most in is it in renovating your home or renovating your heart is it building up materialistic things in your life or is it in strengthening your spiritual life now there's nothing wrong with wanting nice things for your home and making it look pretty and doing bills of course not it's good, it can be encouraging. But really what we're talking about here is a question of priorities. That's why the Lord says in verse 5, he says, Give careful thought to your ways. He's essentially saying, think about what you are doing with your life and what you give priorities to. And that phrase, give careful thought to your ways, we actually, it happens four times in the book of Haggai. That's a lot for a two chapter book. Okay. It's, it's the only time we find that phrase in scripture. Um, you know, give careful thought to your ways. Think about what you're doing with your life. Are you constantly focusing on yourself rather than God? And he's trying to make the point that if you are, it will ultimately lead to dissatisfaction. You'll always be wanting more, always needing to redecorate, always needing to go bigger, to build that extension. And, it, you know, it's why you get bored with what you called your dream job only two years ago. And it's, it's this bottomless chasm that can never be filled without God in your life. And when we, when we neglect God... And glorify materialism. What's materialism? It's where material possessions are the main focus of your life. But when we neglect God and glorify materialism, we find, as the Jews did, that God's blessings will not be with us. You know, materialism is interesting because I, I would say the main concerns of materialism are possessions, comfort, and security. It's all about um, gathering and getting more possessions. 
and it's about being comfortable. Okay, comfort has become one of the main things in life people seek. And then, of course, we want security. We want to feel safe. And, you know, the interesting thing is that actually of those three, God only promises us one. He says, if you follow me, I'm not going to promise you that you will have many possessions, i.e. that you will be wealthy. He doesn't promise us that. He doesn't promise you'll be comfortable, that you'll have a comfortable life. It will be a fulfilled life. But he does promise us security. He promises us that eternal security that comes when we place our life and our trust in Jesus Christ. But materialism itself takes us away from God. And verse 6 actually gives us a microcosm of materialism. Listen to it. It says, you have planted much but harvested little. What does that mean? Well, you know, planting and farming was one of the main occupations back then. You needed food and you had to plant it if you were going to eat. So really modern day equivalent would be work he's saying you work all these hours and yet you're really not getting much out of it you eat but never have enough you drink but never have your fill you put on clothes but are not warm he's saying so look you've got everything you need you've got all the food you want you've got plenty of drink and clothes but none of it is truly bringing you satisfaction and he says you earn wages only to put them into a purse with holes in it so he's saying you know what you might be working night and day And you're bringing in the money, but for some reason, there's never enough. It's going out as fast as it's coming in. That's why, again, in verse 7, we hear that phrase, give careful thought to your ways. He says, this is a time to rebuild his house, to rebuild God's house, his temple. And the reason you're not prospering, he says, is that despite all your work, you are still languishing because you have neglected your relationship with God. God's saying, why, why, why have I taken second or third or fourth or fifth place in your life? Verse 9, what you brought home I blew away. Why? Because of my house which remains a ruin. While each of you is busy with your own house. You know, busy. We get so busy in life that we neglect our life and relationship with God. Busyness is one of the biggest barriers to building our relationship with God. Eugene Peterson, uh, an author and pastor, said, quote, Busyness is the enemy of spirituality. It is essentially laziness. It is filling our time with our own actions instead of paying attention to God's action, end quote. You know, we're all usually busy, but it's with the wrong thing. And here's the funny thing. Have you noticed, of all the spiritual gifts that are mentioned in the Bible, that the Holy Spirit gives us to build one another up and build the church up, have you noticed in those lists of spiritual gifts, guess what is not there? The gift of busyness. Busyness is not a spiritual gift. It's not a gift the Lord wanted to bless us with for the church because he knows it's a barrier towards him. They've let this busyness and preoccupation with their own affairs take precedent over God and their relationship and the building of his house. And so what happens? Well, you know, God is a patient God, but also actions have consequences. And so in verse 10 and 11, therefore, because of you, because of you. So God's saying, you know what? This is your fault. You're the ones who've brought this on yourself. He says, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and earth its crops called for a drought on the fields, the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, on everything else the ground produces, on people, on livestock, and on all 
labor of your hands. So the Lord, the Lord's saying, until you reorientate your priorities and put him first in your life, it's going to be like trying to push water uphill with a rake. Or it's going to be like trying to rearrange deck chairs on the Titanic. It's all for nothing. Gotta put put the Lord first in your life. And when you do, everything else falls into place. All the pieces will fall into place. But He has to be our priority. And so as we look at these opening verses of Haggai today, I think there are there are at least three things that we can take away and apply to our lives. Number one, we all need to reorientate our priorities. Give careful thought to your ways. Ask, am I putting God first in my life? Or is it materialism? Imagine if you put as much time and effort into whatever home renovations you were doing and you put, you put the same amount of effort into your prayer life, into your Bible reading, into your uh, uh, communion with God. Can you imagine what, where you'd be in these three months so far? It'd be amazing. Number two, focus on building your relationship with God first and foremost. Remember what Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Now, for some of you, that might mean um, starting with the foundation and building from day one. Perhaps, you know, that's where you've got to start. For others, maybe you've drifted and you've got a foundation and maybe there's even some framing, but your relationship with God is either stagnated or it's on pause. Get back to rebuilding that those foundations into a beautiful house that honors the Lord. And then thirdly, actions have consequences. So we have to remember, if you neglect God in your life, then your life will never be what it could be. And you'll be missing out on God's blessings in your life. Don't miss out on God's blessings in his life. He wants to bless you. He loves you and he wants to give you good gifts. So don't neglect him in your lives.